0: of Med Talks. You're listening to our Finals Countdown series, which is a series of episodes divided by specialty and targeted at final year medical students to help you prepare for your finals. My name is Baradwaj and I'm currently a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. Today's episode is the first of our Neurology series and is going to be a whistle-stop recap of a bit of neuroanatomy. We'll look at the anatomy of the motor and sensory systems, briefly recap the cranial nerves revise Peter Gates' excellent rule of four of the brainstem, look at the anatomy at the level of the spinal cord segment itself, and finally go over some of the weird and wonderful syndromes that affect different parts of the spinal cord, which you'll probably never see in your career, yet final exams have a penchant for asking rogue questions about. I think it's fair to say neurology and neuroanatomy is very much a marmite subject. You either love it or you hate it. It's one of those you spend hours and hours revising, only to promptly forget it the moment you walk out of the door of your exam. Different people have different approaches to tackling neurology. You may prefer to simply learn by rote and memorise the various conditions and how they present. But I think in the case of neurology, where conditions are so similar in their presentation and yet also so subtly different, it might be easier to break it down into first principles and consider why the patient has the signs and symptoms they do, and what it means for where the lesion might be. Let's start by thinking about the motor pathway in corticospinal tract, which contains axons that carry information from the precentral gyrus of the frontal cortex and descends into the brainstem as the cerebral peduncles. The axons then pass down to the lower medulla and form the pyramids, of which approximately 90% cross over to the other side, known as pyramidal decussation, and forms the lateral corticospinal tract, which is responsible for limb movements. The remaining 10% remain on the ipsilateral side to form the anterior corticospinal tract and decussates or crosses over just as it synapses with the lower motor neurons at the level of the spinal cord. In contrast with the lateral corticospinal tract, the anterior corticospinal tract is responsible for truncal movements. The upper motor neurons then synapse with the lower motor neurons via the anterior horn cells at the level of the spinal cord, which in turn extends distally via the nerve roots, plexuses, and peripheral nerves. Pathology affecting the upper and lower motor neurons produces characteristic signs and symptoms. In the case of the former, this includes limb weakness, typically affecting muscle groups instead of individual muscles, increased muscle tone and spasticity, Hyperreflexia and classically upgoing planters or Babinski's sign. Lower motor neuron lesions, meanwhile, may present as muscle weakness associated with wasting and fasciculation, reduced tone and flaccidity, and absent reflexes. The sensory or ascending pathways can broadly be divided into two. The dorsal column median lemniscus or DCML pathway is responsible for proprioception and fine touch and contains first-order neurons which ascend via two regions known as the fasciculus gracilis and cuneatus. They decussate and synapse at the nucleus gracilis and cuneatus at the level of the medulla, before passing up the medial lemniscus onto the postcentral gyrus responsible for processing sensory information in the parietal lobe of the brain. Who said anatomy was difficult? The spinothalamic tract, on the other hand, is responsible for pain and temperature perception and decussates one or two spinal segments superior to the point of entry, before again ascending as the lateral spinothalamic tract onto the postcentral gyrus. Let's move on to recapping the cranial nerves. I won't teach you to suck eggs and go over each one, since you've no doubt had several years' experience of asking people to puff out their cheeks, say R, ah, and turn their head to one side by now, not to mention concocted your own mnemonic to remember each cranial nerve, which I'm sure isn't suitable for the airwaves. What would be useful, however, is to discuss whether each carries a motor function, a sensory function, or both. You might wanna think about getting a piece of paper and pen to hand for this next bit, as things are about to get a bit confusing. So the mnemonic, some say money matters, but my brother says big boo (coughs) brains matter most, is useful for this and refers to the order of the cranial nerves and their function. So cranial nerves 1, 2 and 8 have a purely a sensory function, cranial nerves 3, 4, 6, 11 and 12 have purely a motor function and cranial nerves 5, 7, 9 and 10 have both a motor and sensory function. At this point you're probably wondering where I'm going with this and what the clinical significance of all of this is. And that's where Australian neurologist Peter Gates' rule of four of the brainstem comes into it. Put simply, Gates noted that the brainstem observes the following rules. There are four cranial nerves, so cranial nerves 9 to 12, occupying the medulla, four, so cranial nerves 5 to 8, in the pons, and four above the pons, cranial nerves 3 and 4 in the midbrain, and cranial nerves 1 and 2 above the midbrain. There are four structures that lie in the midline, conveniently beginning with M, and four that lie on the side, conveniently beginning with S. Those that lie in the middle are the motor nuclei for cranial nerves 3, 4, 6 and 12, the motor or corticospinal tract, the medial lemniscus, which as we've already said is responsible for fine touch and proprioception, and the medial longitudinal fasciculus which is the structure responsible for coordinating eye movements, a problem with which may give rise to intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, as seen in multiple sclerosis. Those that lie to the side are the sensory nuclei for cranial nerve five, the spinocerebellar pathway, impairment of which may lead to ataxia, the spinothalamic pathway, responsible for pain and temperature sense, and the sympathetic pathway. A problem with the sympathetic pathway may give rise to the characteristic Horner syndrome, which generations of medical students have dutifully remembered by the triad ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. The four motor nuclei that lie in the middle of the brainstem are those that are factors of 12, so cranial nerves three, four, six, and 12. Cranial nerves one and two are factors of 12, but lie above the level of the brainstem. The remaining nerve nuclei those that are not factors of 12 are those that therefore lie to the side of the brainstem cranial nerves 5, 7 and 8 in the pons and cranial nerves 9, 10 and 11 in the medulla. So taking all of this into account you may begin to appreciate how conditions affecting various parts of the brainstem may present. Those affecting the medial brainstem will implicate the 4Ms in the midline and either cranial nerves 3 and 4, cranial nerve 6 or cranial nerve 12, depending on whether the lesion is at the level of the midbrain, pons, or medulla, respectively. And those affecting the lateral brain stem will affect the four S's at the side, and either cranial nerve 5, 7, and 8, if at the pons, or cranial nerves 9, 10, and 11, if at the medulla. A notable clinical example is Wallenberg's, or lateral medullary syndrome, which is an infarct of the posterior inferior cerebellar artery supplying the lateral medulla. Once you appreciate the structures involved, you might be able to work out the presentation. The lateral medulla contains the nuclei for cranial nerves nine to 11, the spinothalamic pathway, spinocerebellar pathway and sympathetic pathway. And therefore, symptoms include impaired swallowing and dysphagia since the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves are are affected contralateral loss of pain and temperature sense since the spinothalamic tract is affected, ataxia since the spinocerebellar tract is affected, and sympathetic dysfunction resulting in symptoms similar to a Horner syndrome. Another example is Weber syndrome which occurs as a result of a posterior cerebral artery infarct and leads to a defect in the central midbrain. As the oculomotor nerve nuclei is housed here Weber syndrome may lead to a fixed wide pupil pointing down and out on the side of the lesion, with contralateral hemiparesis and other upper motor neuron signs, since the corticospinal tract is affected. I'd recommend recapping the circle of Willis and the blood supply to the brainstem, so you begin to appreciate other vascular brainstem syndromes and their presentations. The last thing I wanted to touch upon is the anatomy at the level of the spinal cord itself and some resultant weird and wonderful spinal cord syndromes. This is going to be a bit like that communication exercise where you have to get someone to draw something based on your description alone, so stick with me here. So imagine a clock face, and for the purposes of this, we'll talk about the anatomical left of the clock. Although of course, the same applies for all the pathways and tracts on the right side. At six o'clock, you have the left anterior corticospinal pathway at 5 o'clock, you have the left anterior spinothalamic pathway. Between 3 and 4 o'clock, you have the left lateral spinothalamic pathway and anterior spinocerebellar pathway. Between 2 and 3 o'clock, you have the left lateral corticospinal and posterior spinocerebellar pathways. And between 12 and 1 o'clock, you have the left dorsal medial, left dorsal column medial lemniscus pathway. With me so far? So with this very crude schematic in mind, we can start to think about how some conditions may affect the spinal cord. Tabus dorsalis, for example, is a late complication of neurosyphilis and is characterized by the degeneration of the neural tracts in the dorsal root ganglion of the spinal cord. And what's the structure present at the dorsal aspect of the spinal cord? The dorsal column medial lemniscus tract. And so tabus dorsalis may lead to bilateral impaired proprioception and vibration sense bilateral, because typically both the right and left tracts are impaired. Subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord, on the other hand, often occurs as a consequence of B12 deficiency and pernicious anaemia, and more broadly affects the dorsal and postrolateral segments of the spinal cord, unlike dorsalis, which has a predilection for the dorsal region alone. Thus, subacute combined degeneration implicates the structures present in the posterior half of the spinal cord, namely the dorsal columns, the posterior spinocerebellar pathway, and the lateral corticospinal pathways. How does this present? Well, with bilateral impaired proprioception and vibration sense, bilateral spastic paresis, and bilateral limb ataxia. In this example, pain and temperature sense is preserved because the spinothalamic tract responsible for this is housed in the anterolateral region of the spinal cord. Brown-Seacard syndrome is an eponymous syndrome caused by spinal cord hemisection, often due to trauma such as a bullet or stab wound. In this case, there's a lesion in one half of the spinal cord. In this case, all the structures in the spinal cord are impaired. An impaired spinothalamic tract will lead to contralateral loss of pain and temperature sense remember the spinothalamic tract decussates soon after entering the spinal cord, ipsilateral loss of proprioception and fine touch due to a severed dorsal column medial lemniscus pathway, and ipsilateral upper motor neuron signs such as hyperreflexia, extensor planters and spastic paresis due to a severed corticospinal tract. The final condition I wanted to discuss was syringomyelia. This is a condition in which a syrinx or small tubular cavity forms in the central canal of the spinal cord and may be precipitated by sudden increases in pressure such as sneezing or coughing which causes an extension of the syrinx. This often occurs in the cervical spine and in the presence of congenital malformation known as Arnold Chiari wherein the cerebellum herniates through the foramen magnum. The syrinx applies pressure on the anterolateral pathways implicating the spinothalamic and corticospinal pathways. This leads to absent pain and temperature sense, often in a root distribution corresponding to the location of the syrinx. For example, a typical cervical syrinx may present in a cape-like distribution affecting sensation over the trunk and arms. Crucially, there is preserved proprioception and light touch, since the dorsal columns are unaffected. There may also be wasting and weakness of the hands in the presence of claw hand, with upper motor neuron signs below the level of the syrinx. That brings us to the end of this whistle-stop tour of the ascending and descending pathways of the nervous system, the cranial nerves and their organisation within the brainstem. We've also discussed the anatomy of a spinal cord segment and looked at how we might expect lesions affecting various parts of the spinal cord to manifest. I recommend recapping the blood supply to the brain and brainstem and also familiarising yourself with the various afferent and efferent pathways and their entry and exit points within the spinal cord. Once you have a solid understanding of these, it becomes much easier to apply first principles in figuring out how various conditions are likely to present. I hope you found this episode useful, and we look forward to bringing you more podcasts in our finals countdown series. As always, please leave us your comments and suggestions, follow our Instagram account, and check out our website for more episodes and other great resources. Thanks!